Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan and Bruce Backman here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And I don't know. I don't, I don't even know where we are, Bruce. We start a new year and uh, we are at war. We're not at war. It's kind of at unclear as to what's going on in the Middle East with Iran and uh, the spillover into Iraq and the other parties of the Middle East, as we know, uh, I I think the uh, the I'll call it a battlefield killing of Qassem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, was a uh, was a victory for the United States. It could have been done a long time ago, um, but it, it's kind of unclear. Kind of in the similar way of deposing Saddam Hussein was a victory for the United States or getting rid of the Taliban back in Afghanistan was a victory for the United States. But then the question, of course, is where do we go from here? And what is the strategy going forward? There seems to be a tremendous amount of unrest on Capitol Hill right now with regard to the situation and the lack of information sharing with Congress. And that is actually coming from both Republicans and Democrats. Democrats, it's obvious that it's coming from but it is uh, also coming from some Republican quarters in very harsh terms. So as we go into the impeachment month, which is likely to be January of 2020, the impeachment month in the election year of 2020, Bruce, any connection that you can see between uh, what has transpired with between the U.S. and Iran and impeachment and politics, I would hate to say that their politics will play a role here, but politics in plays a role politics in everything. In what? Politics plays a role in everything. I think that um, the 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 pinpoint precision um, death of of Soleimani was probably one of the great achievements of the Trump presidency. I think it also showed that Donald Trump doesn't play by everybody else's rules. And when you change the rules, everybody gets flustered, the right and the left. Uh, I don't. I think Donald Trump. Everybody expects to start a war. I mean, I was pretty predictable. He's not. I think the Americans. You know. Those bases, nobody passed or died, and I think the Iranians knew when they were shooting at them that nobody was going to die. They're not looking to wake up the giant, you know, the, the big elephant over here. At the same time, the Iranians are angry, but they also know that they're outmanned and outclassed. They can say what they want on TV, and the Ayatollah can say whatever he wants, and he can, you know, get everybody all excited, but he doesn't have the wherewithal to go up against the United States. Well, and of he course knows not. That. And he knows that. Which is but why, at the same time, he has to quell riots, which he's self-inflicting on himself in his own country. So he played it safe. And Donald Trump, you know, to a certain degree, whether people like him or not, can to a certain degree claim victory here. Which is why, for so many years, this, that there has been actual conflict between the Iran, Iran and the United States. It's been an in an asymmetric warfare type of setting uh, where Iran uses proxy forces... Uh, like they've done in Iraq and um, Yemen and, a lot and of Yemen and in Syria and, Syria and, and Lebanon. in Lebanon, correct? And, and Gaza, cor- that's right. Yeah, you know, Iran supporting Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So the question is now: is let me ask you. Um, let me let me just throw something at. But I, I let come, me just I throw something back, at you. I, the, Israel has done these types of targeted assassinations uh. for years and they never comment they never say anything would not the united states have been better off in this case of just not saying anything just no. leaving it and leaving it to okay no i think the iranians i think after the ayatollah and members of his whatever you call them administration or leadership in iran you know essentially baited the united states into this after the protests at the embassy to a certain degree as painful as this he was asking for this 
And I think he needed to be brought down to earth. Um, I think the United States could obliterate Tehran in 24 hours if they had to. Uh, and I don't think the Iranians have the wherewithal to compete with the United States any way, any shape or form. I think the Iranians are coming to a moment where they have to come to reality that, you know, either they're going to try to make a real rapprochement with the United States, they're going to make real changes within the country, or they're going to be isolated economically, politically from the rest of the world. Donald Trump is a, is a, comma, is, is a wild card in this. He's operating outside the SOP, the standard operating procedures of everybody who's come before him. And it's to a certain degree, I feel that the results have been very, very positive. I think that Qasem Soleimani has more blood on his hands than almost any other person in that region, if not the world. And it's about time that somebody were to take somebody like that out. And he deserves a lot of credit, President Trump, for doing it. I mean, you can't take it away from him. This was a tremendous achievement of epic proportions. No question about that. What I'm saying. And I think it's also a moment where the Iranians realize that they're limited. I mean, the shots on empty missile bases. I mean, come on. There's plenty of places they could hit locally if they really want to start a war. But they can't start a war. They can't win the war. So why would they start it? I mean, their economy is already being strangled from all ends. I mean, what's the point? And it's a shame. The Iranians have a lot to give the world. It's a beautiful country. There was a lot of advancements over there before the rise of the Ayatollah. And to see that country get to the point it is from where it could have been and where it was, you know, it's sad. It didn't have to be this way. You know, I've met people who worked for El Al, who were flight attendants and pilots, who still remember flying flights from Tel Aviv to Tehran, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when there was a good relationship between the two countries. And a lot of them are very surprised and very disappointed at the way things have developed over since 1980. Well, this is a different time, obviously. And this is a different, different, different situation. Situ- but it didn't have to be this way. Well, no way. But that's not really the question. It's really is what is. I don't think other countries how, how their are, way to such progress like they were. What where things are, not how we would want them to be. What I'm saying here, it well. Let me give you. A... I'm not defending the Shah of Iran. He he has a lot of. He did a I lot don't. Of negative I don't. Too, I don't but... even know that it makes sense to right now to go back to that. Uh... No, but you have to. Because no, no. You but look at the Iranian situation today, everything goes back to 1980, 1979. That's f- okay. Well, then then let me ask you this. Let me throw this out. This is the first time since 1980 that Iran ha- itself. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to talk, count the drone strike that happened a couple months ago, that Iran has actually attacked a United States Armed Forces base, has actually attacked with missiles, with a direct hit, with a targeted hit on U.S. troops since, I'm talking about Iranian forces specifically, from the country of Iran. And our decision has been, despite all the bellicosity, despite the tweets, has been not to respond to that, which in and of itself seems strange because the president did tweet a couple days ago that we have all this great military hardware and we're going to use it if they attack us. They attacked us. We didn't do a thing. Now, there's some debate. They were attacking. They were targeting. They weren't targeting. I don't know. But from my perspective is, given all that you just said, is it a mistake now that that we're not responding? I don't think it's a mistake now because I don't think that the country's ready to go to war. And I also don't think the Iranians, despite trying to provoke a war, were, for this makes no sense, weren't really trying to provoke a war. If they wanted to provoke a war, there would have been American casualties. And they knew full well, in all likelihood, that whatever they were sending missiles, there was nobody to hit. Okay, but Iranian-backed militias attacked the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Correct. Okay, no question and about that. And then the that. president no killed question the, the mastermind right. of the so whole thing. So there's no question that the hand of Iran attack. was there, meaning that Iran 
went ahead and attacked the we want to say the first attack the fair, first before that before that it's a very good question and it's, and it almost it's, it's a very fair question i understand but i think the president also is really trying to have the united states go out uh, you know ign- avoid endless wars when for the all intents and purposes it seems like he's achieved his short-term goals uh, well I, what is that short-term goal i think the short-term goal is to tell the iranians that they better not really start real trouble but, I don't think there's going to be any protests outside the American embassy anymore. I don't think there's going to be any American casualties short term. I okay. think anything. I think I think the Iranians are full well right now that if they're going to do something of substance where somebody's going to get killed or hurt, that they they will be met with force. The Ayatollah himself may get killed. And by the way, that's not a bad idea. But you know, to a certain degree, you know. And but the president said something that the whole world went crazy. And I thought his answer on Twitter or elsewhere was brilliant. Assassinating He's, foreign leaders is a tough sell. Not really. Qasem Soleimani, for all intents and purposes, was a military leader of Iran. Yeah, I understand. I don't think it was such a tough sell. So let's I don't think there's so much opposition to it. I mean, I know Michael Moore is very disappointed about it, but you know, Michael Moore is very disappointed about a lot of things that make let's, no sense. Let's talk for a second about the relationship with Congress then for a second. As we go into uh, impeachment season, it was quite striking to see Senators Mike Lee and, Senators, and Senator Rand Paul outside of a briefing. I kind of I expect it from Democrats but essentially excoriating the administration for not being willing to share any of the intelligence around this, uh, despite the fact, as Mike Lee pointed out, they were in a skiff, they were in a secure facility, there was no reason that you can't share intelligence, and basically saying, trust us, don't listen, don't talk about it. Um, essentially, as Mike Lee pointed out, this is the worst briefing that he has gotten in nine years as a senator. Uh, by far, uh, is this a good time, essentially, to be for the White House to be um, ticking off their allies as you head into a very precarious political position? Or you might say it's a strong political position. I don't know. But is this a good time for that? It's a good question. Time will tell. I don't know. Were you surprised? The Mike Lee part surprised me. Rand Paul never surprises me. I mean, to be frank, I was I was surprised that Mike Lee would excoriate the president's administration in public. But it must have been pretty bad for that to happen. Yeah, I was surprised. I wasn't totally surprised. That, I mean, I would have been really surprised if it was Lindsey Graham. Um, but I was surprised that Mike Lee would go out there and say that. But who's to say what went on in the meeting? Who's to say came over to brief them? Who's to say that if more information wasn't shared after that that could have cleared some of it up? Who's to say a lot of things? I don't know. All I know is is that the president of the United States plays by a different set of rules and a lot of people in Washington don't like it and it applies to a lot of things across all levels of government and foreign affairs and for the most part economically and militarily president's not doing so bad you know the way we've done things for the last 30 40 years ain't so great it's got us into a lot of protracted conflicts nobody knows why nobody knows what's for the president's not going to the president doesn't need to prove anything to anybody and he's not going to send people overseas for no reason and i've always liked that about him there's a certain you know, I'm bigger than all of this kind of thing, which to a certain degree, I think Americans find refreshing. I mean, how many times Nixon would say, I have to leave people to die in Vietnam because uh, I can't be the first American president to lose a war. You know, that's this president doesn't care. He's like, I'm Donald Trump. I don't care. Now, to a certain degree, that sounds arrogant and obnoxious, but in another respect, it's very refreshing. It's very candid. It's very honest. It's It's almost appealing. And I think that's why his supporters, like myself, are very loyal to him. Because we really do trust him to a certain degree, even though it sometimes, you know, goes against practical common sense. 
on many issues because we feel that that's that's quite a, that's a very interesting statement that you just made. We stick with him. We trust him, even though it goes against common sense. Sometimes, yes, we trust him. Most it, Americans seem, I know trust him. That seems like a rarity. We trust Donald this. Trump. We think I think most Americans who you know the left goes crazy the media go why they're so loyal to him. I think they really trust him. I think people. I think Donald Trump has a higher trust ratio with a certain segment of the American population. He's allowed people to feel that he's their guy. He's my guy. I think Jew, Orthodox Jewish people feel he's their guy. I think that there's many people, working class people in the Midwest, who feel that he's their guy. They feel they never had a guy before. They never had anybody who spoke to their issues. And to a certain degree, because of that, they're willing to cut him a lot of slack. Because all the other people they've ever had have lied, been dishonest, and for lack of a better word, you know, done things that have negatively impacted them. With smiles all the way through. How many times Barack Obama lit a menorah at the White House while he screwed Israel the next day or the day before? I mean, it was standard. And he smiled and he took pictures. That's not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is what she sees. He's a real New Yorker through and through. Not a New Yorker like uh, the, the people who just moved here to work in uh, Soho in, in boutiques. He's a real old school New Yorker. What you see is what you get. Maybe brash, maybe uncomfortable sometime, but it's authentic. And he means it. It's not full of it. Let, let's... Uh, yes, I'm a big apologist for the president, and that's probably why you have me on. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 I like it, and I think a lot of other people do too. They feel really good about it. I think I, I agree with you. I think people. I think his unconventional nature is is what attracts many people to him. His willingness to break the barriers, uh, to break the bonds of conventionality, if if that's the right word. And to defy the conventional wisdom and to, to defy Washington and to defy the establishment. No question about that. I'm not so sure about the authenticity. I wonder where I wonder where that's headed. But I feel because that of, I disagree. I think there's a lot of authenticity with Donald Trump. Not authenticity from where he's authentic like he's he's pure. There's a certain authenticity with Donald Trump is what you see is what you get. He's not pretending to be anybody else. That is, he is absolutely true. No question about and, that. And in politics, we've had a lot of politicians who love kissing babies and then, you know, going in a private room and hurting babies considerably. You know, I love all the children of the world. Right. So, so on certain things, he just says he's going to hurt them and, you know, he that's just what does what, does what he says he's going to do. Right. Okay. And, well, and Washington can't handle it. You well, know, President went after Qasem Soleimani and to a certain degree, he has, he has to defend himself. He's a bad guy. Why would you defend him? Right. I, oh, I, I want to see the intelligence. Uh, Are you saying that he's great, not a bad guy? A excellent pivot towards 2020 because I think that for as all the Democrats were caught flat-footed on this issue, none of them could respond positively. And, and of course, they all look like they're on the side of an Iranian killer. Well, that's, that's which Trump is, derangement which, syndrome, which, which is, law forces you to take positions which you right. can't really take. Which is quite incredible. Which allows him probably to get reelected comfortably. Well, let's I, we'll we'll see. But I wanted there's before, only one person before that, we get to 2020, and we we're getting to next week is the last Iowa debate, or before Iowa, and Iowa seems to matter more than ever, at least in this race. Even though it was kind of said, ah, oh, you know, we're not Iowa, New Hampshire, for the Democratic Party, they're too white, et cetera. But let's talk about that. But I want to just point go back to the impeachment trial for a second, if it ever happens, although I, I can't imagine it's not going to happen. Uh, and John Bolton. John Bolton, the mysterious man of this entire episode, has decided that if he's called to testify and there's no certainty that there will be witnesses in the Senate trial, 
he is he will testify even though he decided he wouldn't go into the house hearings um it's kind of it's definitely puzzling because if you have something to say why wouldn't you, why didn't you say it beforehand it's also interesting of course that several of the republicans uh and they only and they need four uh several of the republicans i think three so far have a, have kind of indicated that they would like to hear from him so you're kind of looking for one more Republican vote that John Bolton would actually testify. Uh, what does he have? What do you think he has? You know, and where to, where does that where does that leave things? You like conspiracy theories? Oh, I love conspiracy theories. When did John Bolton say that he wanted to testify? Same time as this I don't know. Qasem Soleimani attack, was his right? birthday or something? One sec, Qasem Soleimani, right? Who would have favored the attack on Qasem Soleimani more than anybody else in mm. national security? Mike Pompeo. And probably John Bolton. Okay. If you follow John Bolton. I have a feeling that John Bolton, if he were to testify, is probably going to be a witness much like many of the others that were in the Senate trial and the Democrats aren't going to get what they want. I think it's a ruse. I'm not really nervous about John Bolton testifying. I wasn't saying... I don't think anything negative is going to come from it. I wasn't... And if he decides he wants to testify, <laughs> let him testify. I think he's going to cover well, that, that is not the position of, of Mitch McConnell right now. Of course, it's not the position of Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell doesn't want to open the door to who knows what else. And the uh, truth is, there's a lot of Democrats who are not 100% going to fight for John Bolton because once you open the door to John Bolton, you're probably opening the door to all the Bidens. Hunter Biden is going to have to testify if John Bolton gets testified. And I don't know if Democrats are ready for that. I don't think Joe, Joe Biden, who's the last great hope of the Democratic Party to win the presidency, and all his supporters in Congress and on the Hill are going to want that either. I mean, let's be honest. Hunter Biden seems like a really bad guy. He seems like a much worse guy than any of the Trump kids have ever been accused of being. I mean, the fathering of the illegitimate children, um, the, the the business in Ukraine, I mean, money laundering accusations. I mean, there's a lot of stuff with Hunter Biden, and Joe Biden's going to have to explain how he either covered for it, didn't cover for it, knew about it, didn't know about it. And it'll, and it'll, and it'll destroy his campaign, and in all likelihood could lead to a Bernie, Bernie Sanders presidential candidacy. So that the Democrats is, are going to have to think. That is well, quite the conspiracy theory that you have. Well, it's there. not the conspiracy theory. I mean, Bernie Sanders right now is primed to win Iowa and New Hampshire. And if he wins those two, who's going to stop him? Who's going to stop Bernie Sanders if he wins the first two? Nobody ever loses after winning the first two. It'll be, it'll be a first. Mike Bloomberg. I don't think so. Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump. You know are what Bernie each... Sanders has going? Well, for I'll him? tell you what. I'll tell you one thing. You know what Bernie Sanders has going for him? Uh, you know what? He's authentic. You know that Mike Bloomberg has essentially goaded the Trump campaign into buying a ten million dollars Super Bowl ad. They decided they were going to advertise at the Super Bowl. Ten million dollars never been done before because nobody ever feels the need to do a national ad, and. The president's campaign. Like is I said, Michael Bloomberg spend ten million dollars at the same time. If you don't, by the way, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree that I think Mike Bloomberg has an incredibly tough road. To I, I don't even understand. But we'll leave that aside right now. There's no question he's getting under Trump's skin. I had the privilege of because working why, with Doug Stone. He's very good at spending other why, people's Because why would the why and you did too? Why would Trump? Why would the Trump campaign drop ten million dollars? On this, they're only if you're I mean, the Trump campaign. No, the other Trump campaign, the you, there are only eight states max that really matter to you. That really matter to you at this point. So why we'll do a few more? But we'll see. Okay, you want to make it ten states? I don't Maybe. know. I mean, truthfully, I was going to say six, but if you want to go to eight, I will. We'll have that. We can we can save that count for a different uh, for a different. I mean, time the president's not convinced. It's why like New Mexico? So and if stuff you're are if, if you're 
if you're dropping if you're dropping ten million dollars on an ad, you're essentially doing it only because you want to counter whatever Mike Bloomberg says. I mean, and if that's and that I got to tell you, that's actually a good. Uh, that's you know something they, that's points on the board for Bloomberg. I think for a lot of uh, for a lot of Democrats. it could be points on the board. It could be points on the board for Bloomberg. The problem is, is that Bloomberg has a base of Democrats who don't really like him, and I don't see him as someone who could bridge the gap right now. I mean, he he, he can talk the talk. I mean, the Bloomberg's problem's always been he's a snob, and I don't think a snob wins a Democratic primary this year. I think they had a snob last time around. Her name was Hillary Clinton, and as much as I always thought Hillary was going to pop in here, it seems like. I mean, I think she's hoping for a brokered convention and they run back to her kind of like 56 with Adelaide Stevenson. But um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the game plan for Bloomberg is, but he has a lot of money and he has a lot of consultants who like to make a lot of money off of him. And consultants, it's a very dirty business sometimes and you tell people things that aren't as, really true. As does the president, no question. No, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, Doug Schoen listens to this or he's not, but I mean, I mean, let's be honest. I'd love Doug Schoen to go on television and explain the path here because nobody really sees how oh, it ends I, up. I don't. I, I don't disagree. And he's he's convinced Michael Bloomberg, who's allegedly very smart, but a lot of rich people have been convinced by a lot of consultants over the years to do things which make them a lot of money and lose the candidates a lot of money with little chance of winning. Okay, so we're headed towards twenty twenty. We're headed towards Iowa very very soon. We're going to see what happens. And, and as is you in said, very good shape going I, look, I, I, I don't disagree. The Democratic race is going to be quite interesting. But I do want to continue. I would love to see a, a race between Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders going down the wire. I think it would be a very interest, interesting uh, that would be, that, that, Look, the one thing Bloomberg has is no shortage of money. He isn't getting out. But let's let's talk for a second about continue about the anti-Semitism. Um, there was a big march in, well, two things. Number one, the state of the state was yesterday in New York, up in Albany. And the governor had gave the honor of the invocation to be given by Rabbi Rottenberg, uh, the, the Rebbe of Forche, whose uh, synagogue was attacked, as we mentioned, in Muncie uh, by a machete-wielding madman. And the, one, the interesting thing here is that there's been this debate, uh, I don't even know why it's debate, but a discussion, I guess, about last Sunday's March Against Hate, No Hate, No Fear March, sponsored by many mainstream Jewish organizations, which did not have a significant participation from the Haredi community, not from Crown Heights, not from Williamsburg, some Crown not, Heights, not from Borough, some, but very, very few, a couple, yeah, and they were kind of put at the, if you looked at the pictures of the rally, you did not see a lot of the Bavitchers there. No, um, no, no, There's some people I think were told by certain members they better show up. But. No, no, what, I was, what I'm saying here is there is a disconnect between now part of it of course is cultural Haredi Jews are not the marching necessarily the marching type um, except for you know Samer when they go ahead and protest at the Israeli consulate but um, that is that's never really been the thing to do it's kind of you know praying but there is definitely a disconnect between what some people see as I would say the patronizing attitude of many in the establishment Jewish community towards the Haredi community. And number two, this idea of, well, not idea, of uh, the invitation that was extended or the participation of some groups that have been militantly uh, anti-Orthodox and anti-Yeshiva and anti-Haredi for quite some time. And the idea that they have created a climate of othering, I know that that's like a new word, but I'm learning one of those words, you know, of, of kind of exiling the Hasidic 
and Haredi community from um, uh, from the mainstream Jewish community and from main, the, from the mainstream, specifically by targeting yeshivas. And the fact I I think that when a lot a lot of people in the Jewish community, particularly the establishment, uh, you know, have kind of been silent about that for quite a few years, and now they want to kind of come back and see, you know, well, you know, we're, we're here to protect you. Uh, but we're going to throw money at you in a sense, even though they kind of look down on the on the on the Haredim. So I don't know. How do you feel about that? I mean, you're from Crown Heights, uh, or I'm sorry, you're not. You know, I lived in Crown you Heights lived in Crown Heights. Years. You're familiar, but you're certainly familiar with the pulse of the uh, of the community and how they feel. And I think we both feel it to we a don't, certain degree. Haredi people in New York, and I can't speak for all of them, but generally speaking, Hasidic people in Brooklyn and other you know quasi black hat um, people um, have a certain distrust of the mainstream Jewish organizations, and when they invite you to something, um, you don't go. Not because you oppose it, you just, there's a lack of um, trust that this organization or these events are places which you really included as a full equal member. Um, I've had meetings at UJA, and I've met very nice, competent people who are well-meaning, but um, their issues are not my issues. Their issues are not the issues of other Haredi and or Black Hat and or whatever you want to call it, people in dry state. And there's a dis- there's there's a there's and you you're you would know this better than my, myself. There's a certain disconnect. There's a there's a gap. So when all of a sudden everybody shows up and they're going to have a rally after it's pretty much all Hasidic Jews and and Haredi Jews who are being targeted. There's a certain you know people raise their there's a certain what do they want? Why are they here now all of a sudden? What do they want from us? Like, because they don't really want to help us all the time, and they don't really like us all the time. They don't say nice things about us all the time, and all of a sudden now they want to like be our biggest friends. Like, what do they want from this? So there's a little bit of consternation. I'm not. They're not against it. I was not against. Who's against the march? I'm not against. No, nobody. Yeah, I'll great thing. March. And they want to have a march. Twenty-five thousand people beautiful. showed up. It's beautiful. But I agree. We I- we we are not. Um, as a, I mean, I don't want to speak for too many people, but I think a lot of people feel that. We just don't. We, there's there's a there's a certain distrust issue. There's a certain issue of distrust, and it's not going away anytime soon. I mean, you know, Yafed does not represent anybody that I know who sends their children to yeshiva. Um, but for some reason, they've had the ear of a lot of prominent politicians in Albany. It's it's unbelievable. The I would have to say the hype around Yafed and this idea that they claim to represent. I mean, and Yafed Naf- is definitely is definitely the offender. Naftali Moster, I'll say this so people should know if they have. Well, why not? People want to know. He goes on television and he wears a yarmulke and he pretends like he's a yeshiva boy, but I have seen him personally walking the streets of Manhattan without a yarmulke in unkosher establishments. He doesn't, he, I mean, I, I, you know, if you don't want to be orthodox, what a person, don't be orthodox, right. but don't go on television and pretend you are when you're not. I, I, and then say you're speaking for people who nobody I know you're speaking for. Uh, it's, uh, I, I absolutely agree. I think if he wants to be a person who's mad, go on television, tell everybody I'm not religious. I I don't believe in this anymore, and I think so. Be fair, but don't pretend you're something you're not when you go on television. So people think that there's this like outpouring of people who are mad at the yeshiva system. I think Yafed has done more damage to uh, the fabric of uh, to the perception or the uh, how. The Haredi community has is looked at and portrayed, um, and some and many politicians have bought their spiel hook, line, and sinker because they want to, 
because no, they, they've been waiting because that, to because buy it. As as com, as Councilman Common Yeager said appropriately, because we don't vote the way you want us to, because we don't think the way you want us to, we don't look the way you want us to. The, exactly, and. Uh, and there's no question that quite a few politicians, quite a few progressives, buy this whole thing. And even when the report, they don't and buy even it, when, and even, they were looking and for even it. when the report comes out, and and a report from DOE, which is you know whatever, subject to politics. Who it is? It's the idea that oh, only two schools out of twenty-eight. Well, there were three hundred yeshivas mm. in in New York City. At least, okay. Naftali Moster lumped them all together, every single one of them, okay. And he found, and and of the twenty eight that are the problem that came out, okay, it, it's as if, you know, most of them, very few of them, I think there were three that refused to cooperate, refused to comply, and refused to make any improvements. Okay, that's unbelievable. When you three out of three hundred, and yet we have a massive problem of thousands and thousands. Of, that's that's this idea that they would have you believe, and. That idea of oh well these Haredim they're they they don't play by the rules they are they my, they my, are bad they are danger for society. My daughter goes to a small cheder. The cheder she goes to is poor is not is not is not well funded. It's a small school. They actively try to incorporate modern techniques in teaching and technology in the classrooms, but in keeping with the values of the school. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing and wrong. most schools in New York want to do those things, but he doesn't want to improve yeshivas. He wants to destroy yeshivas. That's right, and destroy the community. And I have a feeling we'll discuss this in the coming weeks. That's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.